this week on the Real Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, we have a very special guest, Nathan Robb, the author of The Hunt for History. Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me today are Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, Rail Split Nash? For all of you listening to us as you're geocaching. And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Split Nash. Hope you're all well. And today we have a very special guest. He has appeared on CNN's Pierce Morgan Tonight and the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. He's been on NBC Nightly News, CBS Morning News, the BBC, and almost every major national and international print publication. Uh, he contributes to Forbes.com, and he is a principal of the Rob Collection, a firm specializing in buying and selling historic documents and items. He's the author of The Hunt for History, which is a book that is part memoir, part a how-to book on finding, collecting, and authenticating historic artifacts and documents, part history book, and 100% entertaining and educational. So we are very pleased to welcome Nathan Robb to the show. Nate, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you, I think you just won the prize for the longest intro in Rail Splitter uh, history. So uh, most impressive uh, yeah. uh, curriculum vitae there. Um, so, <laughs> so we want to talk about your book. We want to talk about your work, um, just kind of, you know, all of those things and, and just kind of, um, one, recommend to our listeners to definitely pick up the book. I got a chance to read it. Um, it just came out, I believe, in March. Um, so I mentioned the book is many different things. That's kind of my interpretation that it was kind of part memoir and part how-to and part history and I really like that about the book, but how would uh, you describe your book? Uh, I think your description is accurate. Uh, I would add on to that that just from a personal perspective, it it was a journey for me. It showed me going from young child immersed in the world of history, and and you know Lincoln was a major part of that, of course, to somebody who's running uh, uh, with this firm and writing this book in 2020, and and. Um, so it showed the progression not only of my own understanding of the power of history, the power of these figures, but also, uh, you know, how to authenticate, you know, how not to make mistakes. So I, I thought your your intro was was uh, was was well done. Well, all right, and, and sufficiently long, sufficiently long. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the yeah. That's uh, you know we gotta gotta make sure we give you your props. Um, yeah, so um, so describe for us uh, what is uh, the Rob Collection. This is a firm that was founded by my father when I was in middle school that specializes in the buying and selling of historical documents. And what is uh, sort of part of that, which is the necessary component of that, is the ability to assess the historical value, the ability to authenticate, the ability to know how to conserve and protect, uh, relate to the potential buyers who are both institutions and private private buyers. But, you know, what What I the end game for us is to understand, OK, so what makes these things valuable? So let's assume that in order to be in this business, you have to be able to authenticate a document, because if you can't, then I mean, how can you even step in the door? 
Then the hardest part, the most challenging part, the part that takes the most time is understanding why is something historically valuable. And that requires a great deal of historical knowledge. So you kind of started out as a, um, I think similarly, kind of we've shared our experiences as as young people just kind of interested in history. Um, and and I distinctly recall many people saying, well, like, don't, don't ever major in history because there's no, there's no careers in that, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't go do history. But you're very much doing history, like you're very much uh, putting your knowledge um, to the to a field, and, and have really kind of created a living out of it. Um, yeah, and there's no, you know, you, there's no degree to do the thing that we do. There's no, uh, you, certainly, you can become a George Washington scholar and become an expert in that with the intent, or or a scholar of the period and with the intent of becoming an expert in that field. But there's no. There's no preparatory system to do what we do, and maybe that speaks to the size of the market. But it, it is a dying, um, it's a dying ability. You know, there's just, you know, the the, the world of the eBay's and the the world of uh, you know the the pawn stars makes everything very popular, and that's a good thing. But it lowers the barrier to entry for people who are you know have the requisite experience and have gone through the the apprentice style training that I went through, which is really exactly what it was. I mean, it took me years to be able to feel comfortable doing anything with, because, you know, you're working at a high level. So, so if somebody calls you with a letter of Abraham Lincoln and they, you show up on their doorstep with the intent of buying that letter of Abraham Lincoln and you, you're standing in tow with a check, which you might have to write for t- somewhere anywhere between 20 and a hundred thousand dollars. And if you don't know what you're doing, that's a costly mistake to make. So, you know, you need to be able to have enough confidence in your own ability to know that you won't make that mistake. And there's no substitute for just years of practice seeing over and over, over and over. Yeah. And that I found that fascinating because you, you take uh, the reader through very detailed processes of, of, of actual things that you've authenticated documents, which which I really enjoyed from the book. Um, so is there anything other than your reputation you know, because basically you've authenticated things by by you authenticating them. Um, is there any, do you have is there like a licensure or is it just kind of like the Rob Collection is is from from what I can tell one of the more renowned firms um, that they trust it. Well, my opinion is we're the most renowned firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but to answer your question seriously, uh, there's. No, you're, you you work with people that are trusted who have done this for a very long time and have the experience to do it. There's no quick fix. There's no third-party authentication process that will give you the ultimate uh, satisfaction, in my opinion. I mean, that's my opinion. Other people may feel differently, but um, there's no – this isn't the gem industry where you, it's like a GIAA, and I know this only because I bought my wife a wedding ring, you know, like – there's there's none of that that applies to this field um so let's like you know let's imagine that our cordial competitors uh Christ- and christie's and sotheby's they sell under their own name and they do so because they have the reputation and experience that that engenders there's no third-party authentication there's no um you know cred beyond their own name and we aspire to uh, have the same um uh, uh, feeling on the other end, on the customer end, and the way that we do that is by treating people fairly, knowing what we're doing, and finding good stuff. 
Yeah, like um, you mentioned treating people fairly. One question I was going to ask, and I apologize if I'm taking all the questions, Mary or Nick, just hop in. No worries. Um, whenever. Um, so one, a couple of the stories jumped out at me where you um, found something that was, you know, you kind of tell stories of finding documents that are very, very valuable, more valuable than the owner believes them to be. Um, so what's, you know, how do you, how do you work out that price? You know, you, you mentioned being fair and I, and I felt from the stories like, wow, you, you very much tell an example of like somebody probably would have taken far less than you offered, but that wouldn't have been fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we deal with that all the time. I mean, do we sometimes overpay for things? Yeah. Do we sometimes buy something and find out something different that we would never have known? We pay people as much or more than we feel they could get elsewhere. And then we price it based on where we feel our customer base will buy. Um, so it's many of the pieces that we ended up buying and making a great deal of money on in the book. They had gone to other people who assessed the value at a fraction of what we ended up paying them. It's a fickle market. I mean, you know, if, if somebody came to you with a document signed by Thomas Jefferson and you said and, and you were offered X, by one, by the, by the auctioneer said it was a six to $8,000 estimate. I'm making up these numbers and this, and the situation. <laughs> and then the appraiser said it's worth, uh, 12, but I pay you 11 and get 19. What's that document worth? I mean, you could send that same document to a different auction the next day and get 25 or five. Yeah, what's you know so one of the the beauties that i love about our business being that we're retail is we have the opportunity to discuss with people and talk with people they have the chance to think it through and and often do their own research um so it's it's not it's i i get to deal with it less as a sort of a bargaining negotiation kind of a business and more as a okay this is these are people our customers are people who love history um you tell many stories in the book about you know finding and authenticating very valuable um, documents and artifacts. Do you have stories that, from the book or not, uh, that stand out to you as maybe the most unique or the most memorable? They wouldn't be the ones that you would think. So going to, you know, a 92-year-old's house where he's selling letters of Heisenberg and other famous scientists and Sarah Churchill, Churchill's daughter, to him, and at and and he's selling these things that are written to him. This is a rare circumstance in which. It's not, it's not something that he's bought or he's collected or inherited. Or um, These are letters that were written to him specifically. And at the end of that conversation, uh, he rolls out a tr- – I mean, it, it was an actual tr- rolling tray of liquor. And at like 10 o'clock in the morning, wa- wants to celebrate this amazing t- – experience with me with a toast of cherry brandy which i mean setting aside the consumption of alcohol at 10 a.m which which one ought to set aside um (laughs) it showed that for him this was a really emotional experience like he was doing something that was really important to him and special like he was selling some stuff that he had kept his entire life and you know this was an event to him this wasn't a casual transaction which for me it was a casual transaction it wasn't worth a lot of money um but it was an, it was a it was a a joyous emotional experience that I'll never forget. Yeah, uh, and and there's there's several of those uh, in the book that are really fun to to listen to yeah. and or to to read about. Um, so I'm sure you probably get the Indiana Jones question from time to time when folks, you know, there's the famous Indiana Jones, <laughs> the famous Indiana Jones scene where he's 
screaming at the guy that belongs in a museum. Um, so what do you say to people who say like, yeah, you're finding these amazing things and selling them. Shouldn't they go in museums? What, what, what do you, how do you respond to that? People think of museums as these places where all important things go and we get to enjoy them. And a piece of that is true. There is, it is, it is important that these great pieces of history reside in museums where people can go and see them. I believe that what people don't often see is the thin line that exists between the private collecting world and the museum. So they don't see the fact that this was donated by somebody who bought it from someone like me. They don't see this may be on loan from me. They don't see that the heirs of the people who buy from us in almost invariably donate to museums. They don't see the wing that was built to house these documents that was funded by private collectors who buy from people like me. Our customers include many institutions and there are institutions out, out in the world, but I also believe that the private collector has a right to enjoy these things. And I do get this question a lot. Um, but if that were the case, and there are countries where that is the case, the, the net effect of that would be really devastating. Because if you had something of value, your family's archive, and you didn't have a chance to profit from it, which is people's motives for selling these things, they, they value the money for whatever reason, and we're not judging that, they value the money more than they value the, the thing that they have. If they had no incentive to sell, they would do one of two things. They would keep it to themselves so the government wouldn't seize it, or they'd destroy it. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a, a you know, p those are people, my suspicion is those are people who either have previously made the decision to donate or don't have the stuff to donate. I mean, tell that to somebody in, you know, in dire straits who has a letter of Abraham Lincoln, who's worth, which is worth $50,000. Tell them they don't have the right to sell that. The government has the right to just take that or some institution can just take that. Or tell the people who are going to the Morgan Library or the Huntington Library or the Rosenbeck Museum, which was entirely created by private collectors and dealers, that they don't belong. I, I think it's it's an understandable reaction, but I just I think it's it's looking in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer, and that's yeah, I think that yeah, it's the the ignoring the fact that that they're they're someone's property, right? Like it's not, you know. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if you get a letter from, let's just use our present day president, President Trump, does a museum own that? No, you own it. So does, does a museum have the right to come in and say, this is more important than the letter that your next door neighbor got. And so we get to keep it and the next door neighbor gets to keep theirs. I mean, that's just fundamentally not what we do here. And, and, and I think it would, it would, it, it would have a chilling effect on the, on the, on the value of historical research. I think it would have the opposite effect of what people wanted to have. I, yeah. I have uh, my White House letter for the economic stimulus. I will sell this to you right now for one hundred dollars. I don't know why I have this. You know what's here. funny? You know what's funny? And this is not mine. This was sent to me by someone else. I have the same thing. All right. That's actually worth negative one thousand two hundred dollars. They pay you to get that letter. Oh, I kept it as a historical novelty. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's such a funny situation. Well, I'm going to skip. This was one of the last questions I had written, but we're just kind of leaning that way. Are we past the days of historic documents? Like with, you know, that was obviously digitally created. Like, will there be a 2020 document fetching 
a, a large price a hundred years from now, or are we largely past the historic document generation era? There are two questions there. The first is, is there, will there be a market for historical documents in the future? And I think, yes, there will. It will look different than it has for the, for the, in the 20th century. It will feel more like the art market because their individual documents will be very expensive. The ability to afford them will be restricted to a smaller number of people, you know, at, at, the, at the high end of the market. And the pe- people will be putting together collections based on importance and not breadth. In terms of generation of historical documents, I think that there will be fewer of them, but I think that there will be some. So again, and I'm not, I'm not doing this with any intent or any, uh, you know, I'm I'm not leaning in either direction. I'm, I'm I'm very much a purveyor of history, not politics. Um, let's imagine a letter from, let's imagine a note from, you know, Donald Trump to Jeff Sessions. Uh, requiring him with, you know, because I, to my son, to my, my, my instinct is he's not writing a lot of letters. He's writing a lot of like notes on other things. I've never seen a letter of his from the White House. So, you know, that, that is not like preprinted like this. Um, or an auto pen demanding that he unrecuse himself. I mean, I would find that, I would think that would be really valuable. Um, there, there would certainly be things signed by Obama that I would think would be valuable. But the premise of your question, which is that people transact business, important business, mostly digitally and uh, at a distance, is, is, is accurate. All right. So um, your Abraham Lincoln inventory alone on your website um, has a total price of over half a million dollars. Um, so that doesn't, you know, nothing from Washington and the rest of the world or other presidents. So with uh, that much invested in things. Yeah. So, <laughs> so basically, and I, and I, you know, I'm not trying to like get too personal or anything, but like, how does your business operate with, with, you know, your inventory obviously carries, carries quite a, quite a lot of investment. Yeah. And it, it doesn't take, you know, it's not as if, you know, yesterday we bought all of our inventory. We bought it over the course of months and years. And, you know, it, it, let's imagine that we lost all of our inventory in a fire we thought we were obviously fully insured. We'd get a lot of insurance money, but it would be devastating because the, the ability to reacquire these things, you require them uh, opportunistically. So like, I can't go out there and just say, Hey, I'm looking for an Abraham Lincoln letter. That's great. That relates to the subject. No, they come to us when they come to us. It takes a lot of capital to do what we do. And the ability to be able to expend that capital is coupled with a confidence that you have the customer base to consume it. So not to get too like businessy here, but you know it, we could have all the capital in the world, but if we don't have the customer base, we would just be basically putting together our own collection. And if we had the customer base but none of the capital, we would basically become agents. You know, okay, well I know where this is and I can represent you, which is where a lot of the market has gone. So you know you see a lot of like medium to small auctions, you see a lot of agency agreements. We've you know, knock on wood, we've done well over the course of the last couple decades just building a standard retail business. We find the material, material finds us. Uh, we get that material because unlike an auction which can say, okay, here's an estimate of what you might get in six months, we'll say, when you get it, the next day, we'll wire Y number of dollars into your account. And we like to think that we are giving them as much as they would get elsewhere, if not more. So it's been a successful strategy. Um, so 
uh, what trends do you see in collecting? Like, does are there are there trends? Like, does interest increase? For example, like if you had a historic document about epidemiology or viruses or something, would that carry more weight now? Do you see trends like that or um, or not? It might help me get on the news more, but I don't think it would help me sell anything more. <laughs> I, it's not something that people collect. Uh, I should say it's not something that our collectors collect. I can, there may be somebody that does this, and that's their thing, but. Um, the people are collecting the major figures. They're looking for the big hitters. And Lincoln is at the very top of that list. You, you know, you got Lincoln, Washington, Einstein, Churchill. I mean, those are the big four. Um, you know, and there's a second tier, which is really not far behind the first tier, which is, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Napoleon, um, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, these are people that are, these are, these are the major names. So when you look back over the course of our, year and you see like okay how many of these pieces have we sold well, lincoln's usually at the top of the list followed by washington i mean even though they're expensive i mean they're, they're not they're certainly not cheap um it's just the demand you know we deal in a business where the supply is constantly diminishing through donation and destruction but the demand is constantly increasing which is what drives the price up i mean it's why, why so much more to buy you know something now as opposed to 50 years 50 or, or even 15 years ago when i joined the business um so i guess to follow up on that a little bit um nick and i are both educators and mary works for her county government um but we're huge history nerds obviously we we love our lincoln um so is there is there a hope for for any of us uh you know with modest middle and middle class incomes to to find a Lincoln or I guess what is our best chance for a, for a piece of Lincolniana? Well, so there's the honest answer, which is that to buy an authentic autograph of Abraham Lincoln, you're really looking at a base price of two to $3,000 and you're buying a, a cut signature and you should do so wisely because that's the easiest element to forge. In terms of Lincolniana, there are a lot of things that you can get. There are, you know, printing early printings of the Gettysburg address you know, particularly in the newspaper world. Um, but, you know, one of the effects of uh, the scarcity of this material, increasing scarcity, is the prices have gone up. And, and it's to our, I think it's to our detriment. I mean, when my dad started this business, he was, his customers included, you know, lower school teachers, truck drivers. And, and you know, it, candidly, that's not the, the customer base that we, that, that we have now. Now, could you save up and buy something? Yeah, of course you could. Of course you could. Uh, Mary, Nick, did you have any questions? I feel like I'm... Um, I actually have a question. It's kind of <laughs> getting away from what we're talking about, but um, my other career I had was as a museum conservator, and I really loved working with paper documents. So my question is, when you have to have conservation work done on these items, do you have an in-house conservation team that does it? Or do you have to like source it like out to a private conservator, somebody that has their own business to do it? So our conservator, and, and we've kind of taken this approach in the beginning, we used to work with the man who worked out of the Folger Shakespeare Library. So a lot of these professional conservators uh, or in-house conservators at major institutions have side gigs mm -hmm. and the institutions graciously permit that because it, it helps them refine their skills and they can make a little money on the side. There's no reason not to. So the current person that we have, we have no in-house conservator. We don't, we don't have that kind of operation. We, we kind of have a, a core of, you know, what we do in the buying and the selling in the world and the authenticating world and all the other services kind of are like, you know, head out the spokes of the wheel. 
our current conservator is uh, one of the chief conservators of the National Archives, and he has a side gig that that allows him to handle these kinds of jobs. And he's he's amazing. You know, he's obviously quite competent and um, you know practices best practices and and is responsive and uh, I think price competitive. Very cool. So if you're looking for a conservator, contact me privately, and I'm happy to recommend one. Right. I, I have no financial interest in this. <laughs> How often do you have stuff coming in? Uh, we have between 15 and 20 uh, things coming in per day that are requests to buy, of which we buy. So let's imagine 15 to 20 a day. Maybe we buy four a week. Um That'll give you the, the, the sort of sense of the the funnel. And some some weeks we'll buy fifteen. And other weeks we'll buy nothing. But you know, our business we're a we're a high value, we're high quality, low quantity business. So we don't survive on the number of sales that we make. We survive on the quality of the sales that we make. So um, we've talked a lot on this show about the hat. You wrote an article for Forbes about the taper hat. Um, yeah. So What's your opinion of that? Well, <laughs> uh, we had Dr. Cornelius on the show probably, I don't know, maybe a year to maybe six months before the kind of drama went down. Um, my take personally is I've stood in front of the hat at the Lincoln Museum and was moved, <laughs> you know, and just kind of stood there in its presence and took it in. And I liked that a lot. And now I don't know if I have that, you know, that's, that's kind of gone now. So there's definitely an element of, you know, I don't want anybody to be dishonest, but like, I, you know, I guess it's when do you tell your kids that Santa Claus isn't real? Um, But like, you know, the fact that it could have been, maybe not, you know, I, I, I guess my take on it is uh, it was handled poorly with the whole, whatever the CSI DNA folks coming in was all about Um, handled very, very poorly for such a great institution as that museum is. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I guess, I guess if you, the, to me, at least from what I've read, and I'd love to hear your take on it, um, there may be enough evidence where you can suspend disbelief, perhaps enough. Um, but, but the price tag that the museum owes on it and now the state of Illinois owes on it is, is disconcerting for sure. I think a simple answer is it's a cluster and I won't finish it. So. <laughs> um, so let me say, let me preface this off the bat by saying I'm not a hat expert and I had no relationship with that transaction and I don't know if it's authentic. Um, having seen the information that I've seen, which is really no different than you've seen, the question isn't whether it's real or not. The question is, you know, from, from my world, if they put it up for auction, what would somebody pay for that hat? Which or or sale or private sale or however they chose to handle it. And I think that's their challenge right now is, okay, how do you sell something that is maybe, you know, and, you know, with objects like that, they're so hard to authenticate. So if I told you that this was 75% likely to be Lincoln's hat, would you pay $10 million for the hat? Or would you say, I don't want to risk the 25% because that's 25%. I mean, that's not a small percentage. If I told you it was 99% Lincoln's hat, you might spend the money. I mean, it, presuming you have the money. I mean, the, the assumption here is we have the money. Dealing with objects is very difficult. Trusting your sources is very difficult. Um, it's, I am. I want to be very careful about not criticizing people who went through 
this process because I wasn't part of the process. I don't know um, what happened. Uh, we are very careful in our own business about objects because objects are much harder to authenticate than historical documents because the documents kind of self self authenticate. You can see the paper, you can see the pen, um, you know, the handwriting, uh, whether something belonged to somebody in the absence of DNA. I mean, how many hats were made in Springfield by that manufacturer that look like what Lincoln made in that year? I just don't know the answer to that question. Family lore can be notoriously incorrect. I've heard a thousand times people tell me stories about in their own family that are wrong. So, you know, trusting family lore is not something that you can do in our field. Uh, cause as you can see from this hat, the family, the lore changed, you know, the story changed over time. So is that Lincoln's hat? As I say in the book, maybe. <laughs> so where does that leave them as an institution, which, you know, moved forward in good faith in the purchase of a really expensive thing? I mean, I, I don't know where that leaves them. I'm sympathetic. Um, I've never seen an, them go through the process, any institution go through the process of, such a detailed, you know, DNA analysis. I consider that to be very atypical. I presume they were hoping it would be positive, and obviously now inconclusive is leaves them very much in the lurch. Um, but you know, I I suspect that they are having some difficult conversations. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm on the outside of that, but. Um, I think that's a lot of money to pay for something that might have been Abraham Lincoln's. <laughs> I, I agree. That's a lot of money to pay for anything. Yep. <laughs> Let me put it this way. We, we bought something that was purported to be William Henry Harrison's gold medal that he was awarded to by Congress. Uh, it was awarded to him by Congress. We went through so many steps to authenticate that. We got the measure of the thing. Uh, it's We got the... we. It, we had found reference to it multiple times in the same family. We bought it from the direct descendants. Uh, it came in its original box. And then we went to the Smithsonian itself to measure the gold content against the contemporary metal to make sure. I mean, this, these are the steps you have to go to, through with objects because they're so notoriously difficult to authenticate. And, and it, setting aside the family provenance, which itself was amazing. The steps we had to jump through to authenticate that document were incredible, but we couldn't sell it until we had authenticated it. I mean, you, 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 it's so hard to authenticate these things. Um, so you have to be really careful. Um, so I'm sympathetic. I'm empathetic. I have a small amount of skepticism. Um, but luckily, I won't be buying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, and I, I really, um, you know, your point about family lore um, we're in Illinois. Nick and I are in Northern Illinois, and every building built before 1900 claims that Abraham Lincoln spent the night there. You know, it's like it's just <laughs> one of, you know, every home that's you know, so like it's you know the the Lincoln claims are are bountiful to be sure. Um, have you done any other work with the Lincoln Museum? Uh, we loaned them some documents for a display that around uh, probably would have been ten years ago. So we talk to them from time to time, but not, not not a huge amount of work. But I mean, I, I know who they are, and, and and we have loaned things to them. Yeah, excellent. That's uh, you know, I think that that's another, and we've had a couple folks from the museum on too about what museums are and do, and their collection is vast, but the you know ninety some percent of their collection is in not out on display. 
Um, yeah. So. Well, that's common. Yeah, yep. that's common. Yep. Yep. Um, so you have uh, on your you know website um, and in your catalog you have um, so lots of Civil War documents. Um, you have a, like for example a letter from Robert E. Lee to Jefferson Davis talking about Jeb Stuart, a couple other Lee and Davis um, documents. Have you ever had any reticence working with documents like those? Like perhaps the collection they end up in might not be a history focused one, maybe like kind of lost cause type stuff. I think that's a really good question. I've never dealt with anybody that I felt with that I felt was acting in that capacity. Um, my own anecdotal observation is the people that buy Lincoln also buy Jeff Davis because they're interested in the history of the conflict. I mean, it's sort of the same question of, okay, well, would you carry Hitler? Um, we don't carry Hitler, but the reason we don't carry Hitler isn't I'm Jewish. It's not that we wouldn't. It's that we had blowback from people who were not Jewish who objected to it. So most of the major collectors of of Nazi memorabilia are Jews. And the idea is that you preserve the history because it, it's important to remember. You cannot squash history by um, covering it up. And the, the knowledge of history, if you treated stuff about Jeff Davis or Robert E. Lee... I mean, remember, Robert E. I'm, I'm not. I'm an apologist for this. I mean, I'm a family of, of Union, descended from Union soldiers and, and Northerners. But remember, Robert E. Lee, he was a. You know, it's a complicated issue to wade into. And I'm I'm obviously not African American, and I understand the sensitivity to, to all that. And I guess I have a philosophical disagreement behind people who want to cover up history and pretend it didn't happen. I think it's, it's not the same, for instance, as having a monument to somebody where you are saying, okay, I raised this monument to this person and this person is worthy of this monument and constant praise. Collecting history that relates to something is simply a function of, okay, we want to preserve this because the opposite, the, the alternative to that is that uh, it gets destroyed and people forget. I mean, why would anybody want that? So, no, I've never had anybody say anything negative. If I did, I would approach it sensitively and appropriately. Um, I'm very sensitive to that. But I don't believe that the sale of this material glorifies uh, this, you know, the horrifying institution of slavery. I think that's an answer to your question. Yeah, no, that's a very good answer. Um, I, I really... I think that that's an important perspective to take. Um, and I've really enjoyed like your connection with your experience with Nazi thing. You know, it's important because there are, there are people who deny it. So it's, you know, um, well, you know, I've carried a Theodore Roosevelt letter theater. So it's, so it's in vogue to criticize, uh, Woodrow Wilson for having backwards thinking. And, and he did have backwards thinking by our standards today. He totally did. And if you met somebody who felt like Woodrow Wilson did today, you'd be like, what's that dude thinking? It's like, but he lived in a different time. So we've carried Theodore Roosevelt letters where he says a woman's place is by my side effectively and in the kitchen. I don't believe that. I have one child and she's a daughter and I don't want her thinking that. that's anathema to me. I would, I would hate that. But do I think that that makes him a lesser or different person? I think that makes him a person of his time and we evolve and we get better. Hopefully you know, we evolve and we get better, but that doesn't change 
the good that they did at that time. I mean, that, that's my own opinion, and, and perhaps I don't think it's controversial, but perhaps it's controversial. Um, but erasing the good things of history uh, to attack the negatives leaves us without any historical perspective. Yeah, and we we've had very similar conversations here about how we look at Lincoln, right? Because I'm I'm sure you've come across documents where he was perhaps corresponding with people in the southern part of Illinois in the 1840s or 50s, where he was maybe saying things about um, black people or using epithets or talking about enslavement in ways that are much different than he may have in 1864, 1865. Um, and, and as we're assessing him as a person, we take all of that into account, along with the time he's in. And, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing about history is that we're all flawed and it's important. So, like, I think if you're going to understand Theodore Roosevelt, you need to understand his flaws, much like we have to accept Abraham Lincoln's flaws. Um, and he certainly had many. Well, people deserve to be analyzed by history. They deserve to be morally judged by the context in which they lived. And that cuts both ways. People who are concordant, concert, uh, um, who followed the, the, the feeling of the time deserve to be judged and say, okay, they did not feel like breaking out of that mold and challenging that. And people who do break out of that mold and say, okay, this is not good enough. They deserve to be praised. So, the, so guys like William William Lloyd Garrison, uh, who you know was, and or John Brown, you know, who you know were such were so far ahead of everyone else in challenging slavery. They deserve to be praised. Um, that doesn't mean that we, as you know, twenty twenty people, have any tolerance for slavery or racism or anything like that. It just means that the analysis looks different. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think that that's, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense too. And, and I think that that is telling too, like what your business, that your business is about historic documents. It's less than like, um, you know, if you, if you had Richard Nixon's driver's license or something, that's really not, historically significant but a document where he's you know telling people to erase the tapes or something you know like that is you know um so like it's not a collectible or like a kitsch kind of thing or you know um there, it's history which i think your book does a really good job of of explaining and when you were talking about the william henry harrison piece um that is a kind of a pretty good chunk of the book that that i felt kind of read read almost like an episode of a tv show like you're unraveling this mystery and you know you know there's you're hoping for a good outcome and i, I really enjoyed how you how you wrote that um do you have a, a holy grail in your history uh, document search well i think everybody has the holy grail of william shakespeare um because there are four suspected and i say suspected because no one knows copies of william shakespeare's autograph and they're all in the british library so, you know, the Holy Grail would be to find something that would be like a letter of William. They're all land documents that he signed. I mean, why nothing survives of a writer from that period um, I, I, is beyond me. There should be many things signed by Shakespeare, or at least a certain, a certain number of things. But finding Shakespeare would be amazing. The Victorians turned over England in the 19th century to try and find such a thing, and they were, were unable um, whether something could someday surface, certainly. I mean, even finding an account 
somebody talking about William Shakespeare would be difficult. I mean, that itself would be worth a great deal of money. Wow. Yeah. And I think ours, um, I don't want to speak for my team, but there's the, the lost Lincoln speech from Bloomington, I'm sure would pique a lot of interest as well. I think another point too, that, that you make pretty well in the book is that when you find items of historic significance, it's not as if historians don't get access, like they get the text, you know, like you share that with researchers. So like, if you found the, the lost speech, it's not like, you know, it's in my collection. I have this now. And I'm, you know, they, the, what was said and what was written is going to, is going to be dispersed and communicated, which I think is very important to, to note. Yeah. There's a difference between keeping the object and keeping the information. Yeah. That's very well said. Uh, are there some items, documents that, that you've come across or, or tip, maybe some tip things that you typically come across where people would be surprised that either they're very high or very low value? Uh, I think people are usually surprised to hear the Napoleon letters don't go very high. Um, and that's simply a function of how many of them there are. There are just, I mean, Lincoln or Lincoln, Napoleon wrote like somewhere between 30 and 40 letters a day. So the value of those really would depend on, um, the, what the letter says. Things that go really high, I mean, they're like random people. Like Button Gwinnett is a signer of the Declaration of Independence. No one's ever heard of. But he died young in a feud. And shortly after signing the Declaration. So anything signed by him is incredibly valuable, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if it's a signature cut off a document. Because if you're collecting signers of the Declaration, he's like the, guy, the last guy that you can get. Because he's so rare. I mean, if you wanted one right now, you probably couldn't find one. Anything signed by William Henry Harrison as president is uncommon because he lived a very short period of time. He, he died shortly after. Uh, um, there are some people that you just never see who, I guess it's not surprising you don't see them, but that would be very valuable. The African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley uh, is somebody who's, that people have a great interest in and it would be very valuable, valuable if you found it. Um, you know, it's no surprise to people in your world that Lincoln goes high. And and I don't think that's, you know, I think what might surprise people, I suppose, is that Americans are interested in Lincoln in every era, in every era of his life, from childhood through, uh, through his assassination. I have a question about an individual <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, that I despise. I have a uh, Twitter feud with Millard Fillmore. Um when's the last time do you have you ever sold anything from millard fillmore i do see there are five oh, things yeah. there oh but, yeah uh, we, fillmore, fillmore sells unbelievable who are these people buying these people buying fillmore feud? why are you feuding with millard fillmore i mean his name is millard <laughs> hey he started with me on twitter so i had to remind him that he doesn't know anything because he was a know nothing <laughs> And then it's just become yeah. a running feud on the show. I've mentioned it like a hundred times. Uh, you know, he's he, he, he. Trust me, you're winning the battle. You link the first one. I did. have a serious question for you. So yeah. you got you get documents. Obviously, you have to authenticate them, and then sometimes you know that it's not the real thing. Um, is that more likely because the person thinks it is um, because of family lore, what they've been told? Um, 
or are there a substantial indiv- is there a large number of individuals who are trying to purposely trick you up and sell stuff kind of what's the divide on that uh it's it is very rare for me to find somebody trying to trick me where i can say for sure this person knows what knows that they're peddling a forgery maybe that's because of the our place in the market or maybe that's just because people aren't you know they're they're putting that stuff in other places you know online venues whose names i won't mention um but it, it, most of the time, people just don't know. Most of the, so that's the challenge for us is that forgeries are actually valuable. So, like, let's imagine you had a forgery of George Washington. Hmm. Well, like, for the sake of this podcast, let's say Abraham Lincoln, a cozy forgery, or uh, you know, one of the great forgers of Lincoln who were really quite good, Weisberg, and you thought it was worth fifteen thousand dollars, and I said, no, this is a forgery, but it still has value. I'll pay you two thousand dollars for it, for instance which is not a small amount of money for something that's not authentic. I mean, it's a forgery. But if your expectation is you're going to get 15000 and they offer you two, you know, you're not likely to accept. Um, because I think these people genuinely think that what they have is, is authentic. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel as if I'm being bombarded, with, bombarded by criminals. I really don't. That's, yeah, and that, That's what and, I was hoping to hear. Yeah, and and just to mention for your book, I, I enjoyed where you kind of go into a, a brief history of the famous forgers, and yeah, it's I, I found that to be fascinating. Um, so, I, I'm guessing you oftentimes have to be the bearer of bad news when when someone feels that something is worth a large amount of money, and and you have to tell them that it's not. Um, what's that like? And do you, maybe do you have any any stories of of a time where that was really tough to do? Yes, I am the maker of dreams and the bearer of bad tidings. And so some people think they have something that's worth nothing and they have something that's worth a lot. And some people think they have, well, it's usually the other way around. Usually people think they have something that's worth a great deal of money. And in fact, it's worth nothing. Um, So yeah, somebody, some lady had a, you know, probably in her early 60s had a letter of George Washington that she wanted to sell to pay for her kids' education. And our grand, it was at grandkids college, as I recall. And I told her not to come down. I said, send an image. I can tell you from the image, whether, you know, what's going on. And she insisted on coming down. She drove like eight hours, walked in the office. And it took me literally two seconds to say, okay, this is a forgery. Like what you have is not authentic. Uh, that was that it's emotionally challenging uh, because you know we have feelings we're not just like simple purveyors of history we, you know this is this is people people are emotional about history and history means something um, but more like this woman had planned probably for decades plus to sell this letter um, to fund her grandkids graduate uh, college education to tell somebody it was worth nothing which is more or less what I did was hard. So she just left, you know, she, she spent probably, you know, 12 to 14 hours in the car and about 15 minutes in my office. Yeah. Wow. That's tough. Oh. Um, I, I have one question I was just thinking about. I deal with a lot of stuff of like uh, video and stuff um, for a class I teach. And, you know, we're kind of in this age where people are growing up, making a lot of these videos on their phones or whatever. Um, 
do you ever see a chance where there's a market for like getting your hand on something like that um, down the road? Obviously, I, I know you could maybe get like family video stuff now where it's on like a reel and stuff. Well, in what sense? Like, what? Give me an example of what you're talking about. Let's say, um, you know, let's just use Donald Trump. You know, we have a home video of him being a kid when he's younger. Or Obama, same case. You know, where it's from the family stuff, and it comes up years later. Um, obviously, you know, there uh, might be. Yeah. So you're dealing with complicated issues of ownership, and when you get when you delve into that world and it's modern yeah. stuff. Um, it may be beyond the interests that you have, and <laughs> if you want, I can get into it. Um, you don't own that information. Unless you took that video, or that video was taken for you, and you commissioned it, you don't own that. So you don't have the right to publish it. Um, in most cases. I guess if they were in public, you might, and they had no right to privacy, but you might own the object, but you wouldn't own the content within it. So in that case, when you're selling a video, you're selling content. But once it's out there, everybody has it. You know, if you put it out there and it's on the nightly news or whatever, everyone has it. Or you put it on a website, there's there's no purpose to buying it anymore. So you're selling information at that point. Do you have the right to, to sell that information? Do you have the copyright to that information? My guess is in most cases, the scenario you just painted, you don't. So in, in the, in, in listed on the cover of your, of your book in, in a prominent story or, you know, part of the book is about the JFK flight uh, recordings. So in that particular case, was the object that you came across or that had the value that the tapes themselves or, you know, so I mean, or I guess how does that relate to the question Nick just had? Right. So in that case, the owner of that material was the, was the American people, the United States government. It was information that was recorded on air force one uh, after Kennedy had been shot. And so because it was recorded using a government device by a government employee performing his government job, that belongs to the American people. Now, we got into a dispute with the Ameri- with the government, the U.S. government, the federal government, about who owned the object, not the information, because the information was owned by the people. And the person who bought that wanted to have something that no one else had except the U.S. government, which is that original object. Now, in that case, it was a reel-to-reel tape which said on the front of it um, that, you know, so that's a little bit different than having a digital video. You know, if you have an object that has value that's not like a video clip, for instance, then yes, you might have something of, of some value if it was greatly important to American history. Um, so that that's, a, that's the caveat I would put there. Excellent. Uh, we're getting close to time here, Nate. Did you have any final questions? Um, I, I have one. It's, um, it's, uh, I'm actually like, besides Lincoln, I also study the civil war. I'm just wondering, like, I know you've had Sherm, like, you know, something from Sherman in your collection, but are there any, like of the rarer generals, I guess, that you've come across, like ones you might not hear as much about or think of, like maybe, I don't know, Thomas or like McClellan, just to throw a couple out there. We do carry those those less known generals. Mm-hmm. So there, when Ken Burns put out his uh, documentary on the Civil War, which is at this point it made Ken Burns. I mean, it was just an mm-hmm. incredible documentary. It was a great work. Um, it set off a a uh, surge in the Civil War market, at, and at that point, these 
you know, what the general public would consider to be minor civil war figures would, were capturing a huge percentage of the market. They were, they were selling really high. At this point, that market is, is small. Same, by the way, as the Confederate market is small because mm. people just there's not that much much interest in it. So yes, we do carry that material, but only the most important of that material, and it it tends to be tends to be Union side. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, yes, we have, and even on the, the the larger figures, we have Robert E. Lee and Jeff Davis, but I don't believe we have anything of any other Confederates on our website. Mm-hmm. I, I my guess is that. And Jeff Davis was the president of the Confederate States, and Robert E. Lee was instrumental in trying to bring the the South into back into the sort of the mainstream and, and try to heal the divide afterwards, regardless of how we feel about his actions during the war. So I, I you know I think people's knowledge to be to be a little bit philosophical here, I think people in general, and I think that as history people we can lament this a little bit, people tend to have more appreciation for the big figures and everyone sort of in the lower tiers has been forgotten. So everyone knows who George Washington Mm -hmm. is, but how many people know who Nathaniel Green is, you know, like, whereas 50 years ago, that would probably not have been the case. I think everyone's sort of like us. They're sort of generalists, which is what we are. We're generalists. We're not, you know, we're generalists in the world of American history. Mm -hmm. If it's important and it happened in America, you know, it tends to be what we focus on. But, you know, how many Horatio Gates or, uh, you know, Thomas or even Mead letters are we carrying? It's just not something that we're super focused on. I would, I would imagine if, um, if generals who were casualties or who died, probably I would imagine their value would be a little higher, kind of like you're talking about with the signer of the declaration, like if you had a Stonewall Jackson or something. Um, you know, I, I, we've actually never had a Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm. I've been in the business, and it just says something. Because I'm, I'm, I'm no uh, spring chicken anymore. I used to be. Those were the good. Those were the days. Um, we've never carried a Stonewall Jackson. Uh, the Civil War market for that kind of material, just you know, because keep in mind, our focus is on you know what the market will bear and, and what is truly historically important. And the Stonewall Jackson, he signed a lot of stuff. His stuff is is nowhere near that. I mean, with with uh, Bud and Gwinnett, you see one or two of these pop up every five or six years. Stonewall Jackson, we have the opportunity multiple times a year to buy one of those. Oh, yeah. See that? And that's, yeah, like, that's interesting to me. You're surprising, I guess, because you think, like, oh, he died in the war. So, you know, he's not going to have have mm-hmm. as much. So, um, and I think that that's, yeah, kind of like the unexpectedly high or low, like Napoleon you had yep. mentioned. So. Um, all right. Well, we want to be uh, respectful of your time uh, as, uh, as much as this conversation has been very, very fascinating, uh, kind of a peek into the world of uh, being a purveyor of historic documents. Um, so we do have a weekly feature on the show called This Week in Lincoln, where we talk about or bring up an example of Lincoln showing a little bit outside the context that he normally does in the world of history. Uh, so, Nate, did you have a, an example for us uh, to, uh, to share? You know, you, you asked me, I was, I was thinking about that question. And my the most proximate uh, um, answer to that is that we have historical mugs, and unfortunately, I don't have it here because I'm not at my where I normally live. But we have these historical mugs, and we have Alexander Hamilton, and Frederick Douglass, and, um, and we have an Abraham Lincoln mug. So every day, I like wake up and I drink from my my Lincoln mug. And we have John Kennedy, and so. You know, one day I got in the the, the mail a, a mug of Abraham Lincoln. 
with no return address, like no idea where it came from. And so it took me like a week to figure out who'd sent me this. Of course it was my dad. I mean, who else would it have been? But <laughs> yeah. yeah. So to be nourished and energized through the, by, by the cup of Lincoln. How Indiana Jones is that? I mean, isn't there a whole movie where he's looking for the Holy Grail? Yeah, I the, feel the like high-fiving you right now because I have a vast collection of mugs that are Lincoln and Civil War. And for this episode, I brought John Reynolds with me. Um, oh, John Yeah, Reynolds. I love John Reynolds. Um this is one of the first Civil War mugs I got, but uh, Nick is always teasing me because everywhere I go, I will come home with like four new mugs and they're all like Civil War related. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? Do I have permission? I don't know your format here. But do, I, do I have permission to get up for one second and show you oh, something? Go for Absolutely. It. Yeah, of course. Right. You should really get into mug collecting, Nick. Considering you can, you're going to need two grand to get a Lincoln autograph. All right. This is a photo of me and my father and my brother and my mother. And I believe, and I'm not an expert on these things, but I believe my father is dressed as a union officer. Mm-hmm. As a, So this is me. <laughs> Can you see that? Yeah. That is awesome. Aww. Awesome. My dad. Um, brother. Anyway. That's right. so you know, I think, <laughs> like, I think... We history nerds, our kindred spirits, like every, you know, I, I dressed up in a very similar costume for Halloween once, and yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's that's, uh, awesome. that's great. And, you know, I'm glad you could. Vind- uh, uh, Mary's uh, mug obsession is vindicated for sure. Yep. Um, so, well, we really appreciate your time once again. Uh, Real Splitters. The book is The Hunt for History um, from I believe it's Simon and Schuster is the publisher. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a division of Simon and Schuster. It's Scribner. Okay, Scribner. Yeah. Um, so uh, check it out. It is available on audio and digital um, as well. Um, and it is a pretty quick read, and I would highly recommend it. And uh, goes into much more depth um, than, than uh, the conversation that we had. Um, so pick up the book, uh, The Hunt for History. Um, so thanks for tuning in this week for Rail Splitter Nick and Rail Splitter Mary. I am Rail Splitter Jeremy, reminding you to continue to walk the world with males toward none and charity for all. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>